As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. We're coming at you like Cleopatra with a listener question show today. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who would melt down the Eredivisie trophy and give a piece to every TSS listener if he could, Taylor Rockwell. I say we melt down all the trophies and give all the pieces to all the different fans. That would be a good way for all of the corporate owners to maybe generate some goodwill because they all need it these days, it seems. Don't they just? Don't they just? This story, of course, I'm referring to is Ajax uh, winning the Eredivisie trophy and melting it down into 42,000 tiny pieces. Champion stars, they called them, and shared them with all 42,000 of their season ticket holders. I'm just hoping this was a replica trophy because... I did wonder that. You know, say PSV (laughs) win it next year. They're like, guys, all 42,000, you've got to send your piece back. We're going to melt it back into a trophy to give to Eindhoven. Sorry. Guys, we've got 41,997. We know there are three of you out there. We need those pieces back. (laughs) The handle isn't complete. They're going (laughs) to drop it. Please send them back. (laughs) Joining Taylor and I is a man who loves soccer almost as much as he hates me asking him to predict the results in soccer. It's Joe Lowry. (laughs) You're so right, Ryan. You have that ranking exactly right. Uh, Taylor, I think as a quick suggestion, if we are trying to do this, TSS melts something down and gives it to people like Ryan talked about. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's just be either your mixing board or your mic, something that really has that TSS history, but it's also really <laughs> useful for you and inconveniences you in a major way. Perfect. I do have the old kind of burnt out mixing yeah, board perfect. where uh, halfway through recording, we would realize the audio wasn't really working anymore. We could melt that one down. I don't That's really fine. know how to melt down metal and plastic. I assume just soak it in gasoline and set it on fire in my kitchen. Yes. That should do yes. it, right? Nope. That's it. Perfect. Taylor, read the room. There's a gas shortage right now. We can't be wasting it on old mixers. Come on. (laughs) All right. I'll just use rubbing alcohol. No, there's no hand sanitizer shortages that I know of. 
Mm, yeah, give it time. <laughs> give it time. We'll see. <laughs> but Joe, I do realize it's a fun I, world we live in, huh? <laughs> I know. I know. It's a different adventure every day. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Let's just, uh, you know, we'll all melt everything down and start yep. again, just like Ajax. That sounds like the thing to do. <laughs> um, but Joe, I, I realize I do always ask you to predict results and I kind of, it just makes me want to do it more every single time. But I realize you're a man who likes empirical data. And if you had harnessed and modeled that data for predictions, you would have already bankrupted every bookmaker by now. So maybe I should stop doing that. <laughs> no, Ryan, if it brings you joy, it also, to be honest with you, it brings me joy to kind of make a fuss about it. So I think this could be a really nice symbiotic relationship that we've got going here. Okay, that's good. So uh, who, who wins the uh, 42,000 pieces of Eredivisie next year then, Joe? Uh, Ajax, 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 Ajax. Yep, that's right, Ajax. Yeah, they, they've really banked on that one, that's for sure. That's for sure. That's I think nice he also, also said Ix Ix Ix, which would be three times, and I think that would be their third straight title. So well done, Joe. If anything, it's fitting. Yes, that was intentional. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jess, we have plenty to get on with today, apart from rambling about uh, melted down trophies and the like. Why don't we answer some listener questions? What do you think, yeah. Joe? Listener questions. Oh, I'm here. I for predict it. you're going to do well at them. <laughs> I, I'll go along with that. I'll go along with that, Ryan. <laughs> Let's get started then. Luke Carey has got the first question here. Thank you very much for submitting, Luke. No Josie or Bradley on the Nations League roster. Is this effectively the end of their national team careers? And if so, to quote Samwise J- Gamgee? Gamgee, yeah. Gamgee, I think, yeah. yeah. What's that? It's uh, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, one of those two. <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen Lord of the Rings already. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> What's wrong with both of you? No, neither of you cares about Harry Potter. Neither of you cares about Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'm not, watch. This isn't a soccer player who's really popular. <laughs> who I don't know, is it? No. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, to, to finish off Luke's question, and if so, to quote Samwise Gamgee, I don't know why it makes me sad. He's referring to Josie and Bradley not being on the nation's league roster. Gents, I'll let you have at this one. Taylor, what do you think? Uh, I think it depends a lot on what happens between now and when the Gold Cup roster is submitted, because as Joe and I talked about yesterday, uh, with the Nations League, and then you've got friendlies sandwiched on either side of those two games, so you're going to have four games this summer, uh, it does seem like Greg Berhalter is going to go with the strongest possible team there, and then, uh, according to some reports, that means he will not call up that strongest possible team and maybe will leave off a significant percentage of that team when it comes to the Gold Cup roster. So if Bradley finds form if Josie Altador comes back and looks like Josie Altador I think there's a chance we see see them again in the gold cup I think less of a chance once world cup qualification starts so I do feel like that gold cup could be their sort of final hurrah their final send-off with the national team yeah I mean as Americans can I sorry uh, can I ask you both uh, just to just to get an overview of these competitions nation league and the gold cup the nation's league which is this is the 1920 competition by the way uh the semi-finals I guess you call it of it they're on June 3rd and June 6th in end with the United States taking on Honduras and Mexico and Costa Rica facing off in the other semi-final. Um, where do you rank these competitions in terms of importance? Like, Do you, do you have more of an affinity to the Gold Cup because you've known it longer or does this feel like it takes precedent? Uh, Joe, why don't you come on that one? I've got Nations League 1, Gold Cup 2, and I think that's how mm. Berhalter's looking at it, which is why I have it ranked like that. In, in a normal year, maybe in a non-World Cup qualifying cycle, I don't know exactly how, or a non-World Cup qualifying year, I guess. I don't know how the U.S. approaches it, but right now, Berhalter and company have slated that early June, end of May time frame to be their prep, their, their dress rehearsal, their trial run for 
World Cup qualifying starting in September because they have multiple games in the windows now or three games instead of two in the windows now. It's it's helpful for the U.S. to have a chance to actually work out those rotations, work out those reps. So for me, it's it's Nations League all the way. Taylor, I don't know where you stand on that. I don't really think I have a, a a clear preference. Like I like the Gold Cup because I like tournaments and I think they're fun. This time around, I think I'm with you, Joe, that because it's kind of being treated, I think, as a good to more of a tune up for the World Cup for World Cup qualifying than the Gold Cup. Combined with that, we have the Olympics this summer. The U.S. obviously doesn't, but other countries do, including Mexico. So I think we might get a weekend team playing in the Gold Cup from Mexico's perspective anyway. So I don't mind them playing whichever one will give them the chance to play the stronger opposition, such yeah. as it is. I am down for that. All right. Um, Joe, let, well, I wouldn't let you jump in and actually get your opinion on Luke Kerry's question there. Yeah, I think Michael Bradley's national team career effectively is is over, and it probably has been since I think his last start was October 2019, and the U.S. has lost to Canada in Nations League. They lost that game two to nothing, and since that time, Michael Bradley, and maybe even before that time, he's just lost a step. He's he's a defensive liability at this point, and I don't want to take away from all the things that he's done that have been beneficial to his club teams and to the U.S. men's national team in the past. He's one of the greatest U.S. men's national team players ever. But right now, with the midfield depth that this this pool has, Michael Bradley's not an upgrade. He's not an upgrade over Jackson Ewell, which would kind of be his clearest path into the depth chart somewhere. So I, I kind of see Bradley as a testimonial guy. If he's going to get that last cap, it, it might have to be in a one-off situation like that. Josie might be a different situation, but there's always that gigantic question mark. Is he going to be fit? Is he going to be healthy? Is he going to be available? He's not available for Toronto FC right now. He's missed a bunch of minutes already in this young MLS season. If he does somehow, I don't really expect this to happen, but if he does somehow get back on track and is able to be fit for an extended period of time, then I think you really ask questions or Greg Brawler starts to ask questions of his forward depth chart. Is Josie Altador a better option than Jesus Ferreira or, or maybe not Josh Sargent or Jossie Zardes, but Daryl DK? You have, you have those four guys, Sargent, Zardes, DK, and Altador maybe battling for three spots. And it does become a battle. But if, if I had to put money on it, I'd say Josie's career is probably pretty close to done from a national team standpoint, just like Bradley's. I'm going to go, I'm going to agree with Joe. And I think he, he probably had a more realistic take than I did. I probably went for a more naive, optimistic take. But the weird analogy I will go with, one that I think will be near and dear to Ryan's heart would be, uh, is bo- it about like Samwise Gamgee? Uh, it is not. It's about making tea. Does that help? Much better. Okay. <laughs> uh, you, like, Ryan, you know when, do you, do you use an electric kettle or do you use your stove? I use an electric kettle because I'm not an animal. There we are. That's the correct answer. Well done, sir. But you know when you've like boiled the water, but then you've like, uh, as one does, you forget you were making tea and then you come back to the, and like, you know, it's boiled, you know, it's hot, but you haven't quite seen it boiling yet. So you make it boil again and it does it like right away. Do you know the scenario I'm discussing? You, you know me very well because I do that at least once a day. Yes. Me too. Uh, and I feel like that is how I feel about Josie Altador, that for the longest time he was the number nine until he's not. He's our starting number nine until he's not anymore. And I feel like that was him like constantly boiling. And now he's not that for me anymore. But to Joe's point, I think if he has that form and that fitness, the fitness being the issue, and is able to score a bunch of goals, I feel like he goes from hot but not boiling to boiling again. And he maybe could play himself back into contention for the Gold Cup. Maybe not for a starting spot as the number nine. I guess it depends on what other options do there. But I think Joe is also correct that Bradley 
is probably the more on the way out of the two, if not already out. And so I think Joe's right that it probably is going to be a weird one-off circumstance, or maybe it is just him being brought in for the Gold Cup, but it's as a depth option, and like you're not our starter anymore, but we'll bring you on and hopefully we get you some minutes. And I think that goes to the other aspect of the question for me from Luke, which was like, like why does this make me sad? And I feel that way too. I think partially it's because it's the end of an era that those are two players that we've, I've grown up with. I've had around since, what, 2006 or thereabouts, or 2010? And so... It feels weird, I guess 2010, and it feels weird that it's sort of the end of an era, but it's also because of COVID and because of uh, the failure to qualify for the World Cup, it's another example of two very prominent players for the U.S. not getting the send-off that it feels like they deserve. Clint Dempsey is the same. Like, I think the last game he was around for was either the game that Either of the games that the U.S. failed to really produce a result in World Cup qualifying, Landon Donovan being left off the 2014 roster, and then he does eventually get that final friendly, but still, it doesn't feel like we ever give those big-name veterans that big send-off. They don't get that moment to score a goal in the World Cup, and then that's the end of it. And so I think that's where maybe for me some of the sadness comes, is that it feels like we didn't quite reach the level that we thought we would with some of those players. And it's not to say that they were bad or disappointing, it's just that it didn't feel like this is the way it was going to end as sort of a a fade away instead of a massive explosion and uh, then meltdown after that. Yeah. The, the, the sadness might actually be literally the passage of time, which is yeah, causing pretty much. Yeah, which is quite a shame. <laughs> uh, and I like your uh, kettle analogy because you're both, you're, you're essentially saying that both players have gone off the boil, which is a, yes. a, a, a nice, uh, that's the way polite, better way to say it. Thank you. <laughs> polite way of saying it. I looked at this as a kind of, in a more pragmatic, this too shall pass kind of way yeah. as well. Josie in 115 cats, Bradley 151. Josie is 31 years old. I mean, it's not ancient for an international player, but as, as uh, Joe said there, has only had a handful of minutes this season. And, I looked at the roster and there's only one other player who was born in the 80s and that's Sean Johnson of NYCFC who's not an outfield player. So you look at it in that perspective then it's it's kind of inevitable this would happen and this is just happens to be the point when it did. And this did make me, it, this evoked memories of like you said with Landon Donovan being left out but also David Beckham when he was left out of the England squad in 2006 straight after the 2006 World Cup Steve McLaren uh, left him out and he got left out another couple of times after that. He sort of crept back in a couple of times again but there was that feeling of oh, Beckham's been part of the furniture for eight to ten years, and it's going to be really weird not having him around, and that makes me sad. Oh, yeah, and then he even like played his way back into contention for 2010 and then what blew out his Achilles or whatever and then was on the bench wearing a suit but not playing. So, yeah, that's a good uh, another good example of that where it feels like, oh, maybe we'll get it. Oh, we didn't get it. Oh, well. Yeah, and it felt weird because in two, after 2006, he was in Madrid. And then when he made the move in 2007 to the US, it felt like, oh, it's going to be tricky. England mm-hmm. managers can't see past their own coastline. <laughs> so it's going to be very tricky for him to get back in this team. And uh, he did manage to do so a, a little bit. So uh, that was that was uh, the, what it evoked for me. Is there any more on Luke's question there, gents? Uh, no, I, I have talked plenty. So I think we could probably move on. <laughs> All right, let's go on to uh, Matthew Anderson's questions here. It's MNT related as well. Which MNT eligible but never capped in the picture MLS players might we see in conversation for the Gold Cup roster? For the sake of this conversation, let's include YNT mainstays like the recent under 23 Olympic qualifying roster, maybe even some 25 to 30 year old guys. Taylor. 
Uh, I went with the obvious names in the sense that they are teenagers. Uh, that would be Cade Cowell and Caden Clark are probably players that we could see. I don't believe either one of them has a senior cap at this point, but if they continue to play the way they have been, they are players that I could see in the conversation for the Gold Cup. That also goes for Leon Flock of the Philadelphia Union, who I think is 20. So not a teenager, but still young enough and has been impressive for Philly playing a number of different positions. And I think that versatility could be of service to Greg Berhalter. So those were three names I have. I've got a couple other ones, but I, I feel like Joe's got some solid ones, too. Yeah, I've got Eric Williamson, who I think Portland Timbers fans are still mad at me about for the whole. Does he not have a cap yet? I, I don't believe so. I think this this wow. U23 cycle was his first chance to break in. I mean, he's played for the U20s in the past. He's played at a World Cup with the U20s, then with the U23s. Wow. And I, I thought he didn't. I mean, he didn't make that roster, but it's a start yeah. so far, he's looked really clean on the ball and looked like a player who certainly would have helped that group. So I have him. I also have James Sands and Keaton Parks, two NYCFC midfielders who just really don't seem to ever have gotten a look or NYCFC don't care to release them. I don't know which it is, but those two players, I think, could both be useful in the Gold Cup. I'm, I'm sure there are others. I try to tackle the second half of Matthew's question, or I guess the, the second stipulation he provides there, maybe even some 25 to 30-year-old guys. And I know there are others and probably goalkeepers that I didn't dig into, but the one biggest name, that came to mind for me plays in a position of need for the U.S. national team pool for, you know, however long they've been around. Basically, he plays left back for FC Dallas. Ryan Hollingshead, he's right footed, but he plays on the left. He's positionally versatile. He likes to get into different spaces. Stop me if this sounds like something that Greg Berhalter would want. Hint, it is, right? I mean, he's a player. He's 30 years yeah, old. Am I he's supposed really, to stop you now? Yeah, yeah, whenever, <laughs> whenever. I'm going to ramble here in like three seconds, so you might actually want to cut me off. But Ryan Hollingshead <laughs> is very good. He's never gotten a cap before, and I think he could be a veteran guy to bring in to the Gold Cup. And, and you maybe get him some minutes. Maybe you don't. Maybe you leave those minutes for a younger guy. But I think he could be a useful player to have in that group. The um, one depressing thing, which I will add to this conversation on this, uh, gents, is, you know, when United States players get capped, they don't physically get a cap. Isn't they should, though, right? They should. Mm. I had this conversation with Jimmy Conrad years ago. I was like, so where are all your caps? Like, do you keep them in a cabinet? And he's like, no, we don't get them. I was like, what? Uh, it's, uh, they didn't even give you like a baseball cap that you can put on backwards? Come on, this is America. But, um, this, is, no. this is where we need to clarify because I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to know that that is where that term comes from. Mm. Uh, or at least I was when I first learned that because I always assumed career appearance. It was just a kind of combination to make it a cap. Uh, oh. career and then appearance. So I was like, oh, that's just an abbreviation. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Was it England who actually gave caps every time you would make the team? I still do. Yes. Yes. And you uh, still do. Yeah. Everybody gets a cap like a lit. It's like a old fashioned schoolboy cap that you get. And it has embroidered like- on it the name of the team you played. That's where all the Brexit money was going. All that money that they were like, we're giving it to Europe, it was actually going to all your stupid hats. <laughs> Harry Maguire has a stack of them in his closet. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Do you need those? Come on. Taylor, I laugh politely, but never call our hats stupid again, please. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> but yeah, that is that is a thing that I did not know, but is is pretty phenomenal. I think they should get them, though. You're right. And... I do wonder if you would have to, have, but then you'd have to like update them, and sometimes you'd, they'd be flat brimmed, and it would be a whole thing. I'm into it, though. I'm into it. I mean, o- over here they'd start having sponsors on them as well, wouldn't they? It'll get a bit much, I imagine. <laughs> they would never not have sponsors on them. That is correct. Uh, Joe, I had a couple questions for you about some players. Where do you think David Ochoa is in the conversation? Ooh, that's a that's a really really good good shout there, Taylor. He's on the Provisional Nations League roster. I'll be shocked mm-hmm. if he actually makes that final twenty three. Yep. 
which then leads me to think, okay, he did impress at the U20 World Cup. We can't, we can't let that one mistake against Honduras overshadow that in the game where the U.S. failed to qualify. Some will, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. I, I'm certainly not going yeah. to, right? That, that happens, and it's unfortunate. But he's still a hugely talented shot stopper, or, or he certainly has been in a lot of his games recently. I think he's a guy who could very well be on this Gold Cup roster. He's finally starting for RSL after a couple of years where it felt like he, he maybe should be starting or he, maybe he's dealing with an injury. Whatever the situation might be, he certainly feels like a guy who should be included in that group and even fighting for a chance to start if he performs well in that camp. All right. What about Julian Araujo, who does have one cap already for the senior team, but was the only other player I could remember who looked uh, solid in that Olympic team or like solid enough that maybe they're ready for that next level? Another guy I wouldn't be shocked to see in that Gold Cup group. I, I'm kind okay. of just waiting personally for Julian Araujo to become a full-time center back and to become he's not tall, but he could be a Gary Medell statured center back. I think his skill set is much more useful there than it is as a right back in most systems, certainly for Greg Berhalter. So uh, that's more of just a random aside. When uh, he does transition to a center back eight years from now, I'll look (laughs) back to this episode and pull it up and I'll look smart for once. But I think he's another guy who could be on that group, long story short. All right, because I think it's probably a recency bias here from the weekend review we did where when they talked to Bob Bradley in the middle of El Trafico, he yeah. was talking about how they hadn't done enough to contain Julian Araujo, and that's where I was like, oh yeah, he is He is pretty solid. Yeah. The last name, and we don't really need to go too deep on this one, is Efren Alvarez. It seems like that one's pretty much done, that he will end up representing Mexico. It seems like that's where we're going, but that is still a possibility, although a very unlikely one, but that's another one who I believe has one cap for Mexico, none for the U.S., obviously, and could still play, but seems very unlikely to do so. I'm ready for that one to end. I think Scuffed was tweeting about that uh, Bells was tweeting about that today, about how he's ready for that saga to end, and so yeah. too am I. Yeah, it, it feels like that one's pretty much done. Obviously, you never know what could happen, but I would be very surprised if Efrain Alvarez plays for the U.S. over the next couple of months yep. instead of Mexico. And I blame Ryan for that, and I think that's fair. Yeah, that's I, I, I think it's fair for me to be blamed for most things that are wrong in the world, Taylor. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. I'll, I'll bear that for you. Uh, Matthew Anson, thank you very much for your question there, and thank you to Luke as well for yours. Uh, We're going to take a very short break now. I will go and quickly read the Lord of the Rings books in case there are any more references coming up in the next part. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We have a question here from Christopher Decker. Thank you very much for submitting, good sir. Why should fans of non-Big Six teams be happy that the fan outrage against the Super League has essentially maintained the status quo? Christopher's a Southampton fan. He points out that aside from those six teams, only Leicester has won the league in the 21st century, and only Newcastle, Leeds and Everton have finished in the top four. So wouldn't the Super League have meant more chances for smaller clubs. I've got some thoughts on this, gents. Joe, do you want to have a little stab at um, your answer here? Well, so first I want to give some backstory 
Uh, I was I was out for the week that all this broke, and I, I kind oh, of was yeah. away from my phone, and I would check occasionally, just refreshing my podcast feed, and it would be Ryan, Graham, and Taylor, and then it was you know Taylor and Snavely talking about this, and by the time I got back and was really kind of Joe, back can in I just jump in? Just, just to be clear, you were on you were on your mysterious trip to Turin with the Agnelli family, weren't you? At that point? <laughs> oh no, I was visiting <laughs> my people in Porto. No, I was, I was visiting my kingdom uh, in, in Porto. <laughs> oh, I see. Come on, right? But I kind of missed all of this in a really strange way. But I've done some reading. I did some listening. I edited the allocation disorder episode that Paul and Sam did, kind of giving them an American journalism perspective, an American soccer perspective on the, on all of this. And I thought that was a fascinating episode. But my understanding of the Super League, and please correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, it wasn't necessarily going to pluck clubs from their domestic leagues, right? This this league was supposed to be midweek competition for the Champions League. It was supposed to be the alternative where clubs had assurance of being in that league year after year and didn't have to worry about qualifying in their domestic leagues. And so with that being the case, as far as I understand it, the European Super League never allowed for clubs like Southampton to really do anything. Like it wasn't going to change. It wasn't going to help them. It wasn't going to boost their ability to qualify for domestic competition unless you're talking about Champions League spots which I guess theoretically still could have been around, but I'm not sure how that all would have worked out. So I don't I don't know that the Super League existing at all would really benefit non-Big Six teams. Ryan, am I way off on that? No, I think you're, you're, you're on the right track there, Joe, and you make a good point. I suppose it depends on how seriously the threats of the Premier League and the big other leagues would have been taken to kick right. out these teams. Um, and even if they hadn't, I think the point I would make is that European qualification, whether it be the Champions League or something else, is the carrot that you dangle in front of all teams. And if that carrot is taken away, uh, what is the point, I suppose? What is the point for Newcastle, who famously only try and get mid-table every season and don't go for any cups? What is the point of them to try and go top four if there's no carrot there? I suppose that's that's yeah. a that's a, a big reason why the, the, the whole thing would have ruined everything for me. Uh, well, there is the idea then that like, the the Champions League still would have existed, and so it's like the next best four. But even then, if you have the ninth place team making it because the other six teams are already going into the Super League, is it still the Champions League? Would there have been punishments for the English League for allowing that many teams to leave? Would there have only been one Champions League spot anymore? And then would it have been more an out-and-out fight? Would they have removed it entirely? Like I think there's a lot of questions, and I think that is the big thing for me is that as much thought as these teams supposedly put into the Super League and everything that would go into founding it, I think what I'm coming to realize or have come to realize is that there was a lot of thought put into how it would benefit these teams that were going to participate and what it would look like and who the potential advertisers would be and how would they get TV rights. I don't think they did nearly enough when it comes to figuring out what would have happened if they had left. And that's where there would have been issues in my mind, because if you're paying, if you're one of the many different TV companies that's paying a lot of money for the Premier League and suddenly if they were kicking out those six clubs, well, you were paying a lot of money for those six clubs the other ones as well but certainly those big ones right are you now demanding some of that money come back or is the amount of money on hand going down are clubs going to suffer because they're not getting the funding they're not getting the eyes on them that they were before there's a lot of sort of uh not even backlash but just sort of repercussions that i think weren't really thought out and a lot of that would have had serious ramifications even if the teams had been allowed to stay in the premier league so i think that's the other thing where it's less the status quo 
and more. I guess it is the status quo, but it's better the status quo than like potential destruction and maybe a tiny silver lining, but that being very unlikely. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that, that's the crux of it, Taylor. So let's play out Christopher's scenario. Well, I'm not calling it Christopher's scenario, but the one he presents here uh, of, of these of these teams being uh, leaving to go to the Super League. Yes. Teams like West Ham and Newcastle, Leeds even, maybe they think they have a shot at winning the league at this point. There's a much more level playing field when a large chunk of the billionaire-owned clubs uh, have gone out of the equation. In theory, that makes the Premier League more competitive. In theory, if, if you're in the playground and the bigger kids take their ball away and start a different game, it's more fun for the little kids who can actually touch the ball a bit more, hmm. if that makes sense. But I, I come back to the point, what would be the point of everything? What would, be, what would winning the Premier League mean if those six biggest clubs in the country were no longer involved, in theory, if they weren't? And what would be that character, to, or the reward, the incentive to actually win it? You know, the, the meaning of winning the English League title has meant those, those six teams or variations of those six teams have been at or near the top for like over a century. And that structure is completely gone. And it's the question of integrity, isn't it? It's ruined, it, it would ruin the integrity of the league structure with potentially no top European contest to aim for for those remaining clubs. Or if it was the Champions League, if somehow, if that existed, uh, it would be a much smaller competition with much less money involved. God only knows who would be in the Europa Conference League at that point. It would probably be like the relegated teams getting in it then. But as you inferred there, Taylor, as well, it would, it would mean likely a lot less money for the Premier League as well, a lot less TV revenue, if, in theory, these big teams did take off. So the standard of the league might get more competitive, but it would weaken as a whole, and it might become less engrossing as a, I use this word and I shudder, product as well for us to watch. So I think the outrage here is because it quite literally would have ruined the domestic game in many, many ways. And you can say you can say the Premier League is is inherently unfair, which is the point Chris is making here. It is unfair. Free market capitalism is unfair in many ways, yep. but the alternative is anti-competitiveness. And that's against the spirit of why we all like this game, in my, yep. in my opinion. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, I, I will avoid getting into single entity because that will take us into another 15 minute long conversation. <laughs> I will just say to to one of your points, Ryan, about like, so what's the incentive then? Like, what is the carrot for the team to still want to win the Premier League? If the Super League were in existence and making the money that it were making, let's say Leeds or Newcastle are the ones to benefit in that they become the dominant team in the Premier League and they win the league three seasons in a row. If they're still playing in the Champions League, but the Champions League isn't making the money that that Super League is, and then the Super League decides to expand... If you're Newcastle, you're probably trying to get one of those spots if and when they expand. And so if anything, the carrot is potentially getting into the Super League down the line and then you're jumping ship. So it doesn't really solve anything. It doesn't create this like uh, ideal world, much as I wish it did, where everybody's equal and everybody's trying to participate and we've kicked out the big money bullies. It's just who becomes the big money bully in the absence of the others. Yeah, it would have ruined everything. It's the long, it's, it's, it's the short much, answer. Pretty much. <laughs> Goodness me, Joe! You got any? We've been. I feel like I've ranted for about ten minutes on that, Joe. Any more to add to that, or uh, 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 do you want me to cool down a little bit? Well, I just want everyone to know when we were first texting about which questions to answer, and Ryan saw this one. He said something about being in a ranty mood already. So I'm glad that some of that has <laughs> translated onto this show. I I just keep going back to what I what I edited weirdly when I got back into the soccer world a little bit on that allocation disorder episode. Paul and Sam were talking about how there's this continuum between competitive balance and league rules and salary caps and all that more American stuff on one side. And then on the other side, you have this pretty much free spending 
asterisk financial fair play, whatever, and kind of a lack of competitive balance on the other side, European leagues and, and the Premier League specifically are almost all the way towards that free spending side. And I do, I do empathize with Christopher a little bit here. I'm not a fan of a Premier League team, but I, I can understand the frustration of where this is coming from. I don't have a solution to solve this and to better the status quo. But I, I think you guys are all with me on this. Like there are real flaws with how the the leagues are structured in Europe and how the Premier League is structured and how maybe there's a lack of competitive balance at times. I know Ryan, you're talking about you know ruining the competitive spirit of this competition, but there are reforms that I think are needed. And I am just kind of glad that I don't have to be the one to think about that and, and actually put it into action. Yeah, you're not the one who has to tell the billionaires they can't have as much power as right, they want. Right. Yeah, which is pretty <laughs> tricky to exercise that one, uh, which makes me always wonder how the campaign um, that United fans were talking about with the 50 plus one rule being brought in, how they would practically apply that to people who have already in the hegemony of uh, of the billionaires. I think that's an interesting one. But uh, for Christopher, who's a Southampton fan, I think on balance, Southampton are better off with the status quo than without it. Yeah, as long as Liverpool keep buying their players for way too much money. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what? Southampton would have solved, like, this all could have been solved for Christopher and Southampton if they just pulled the trigger and bought Weston McKenney this summer. So, really, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of sympathy yeah. now looking back on it. That's kind of on them. <laughs> Well said, Joe. Well All said. All right. Thank Christopher, you. thank you for the question. We're going to move on to a very serious and equally serious question from Jackie <laughs> mm-hmm. Choi here. In 2014, Graham Zussi was voted the hottest player in ABC News' World Cup hunk bracket. I missed that one. Shocking. I, I, yeah. Shocking. I, I don't know how that one escaped my attention. He narrowly edged out the other finalists, some guy named Cristiano Ronaldo. Yuck, yuck, yuck. They didn't run the bracket again in 2018, but if they had, who do you think would have won? I know you guys are straight dudes, but I'd love to hear your usual detailed analysis on such an important topic. And it is a very important topic, guys. It is. Um, Okay, so I've got one name that stands out shining like a beacon in this one, but I'll see if anyone else says it first. Taylor. Oh, I don't think I will. But uh, what I have learned from this uh, question is, number one, the lack of Italy at a World Cup has never been more devastating. I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> number two, I've learned that I have bad taste in men uh, because every single person that I thought was attractive for any number of reasons and said to my wife, she was like, ew, no, what are you doing? So she, for example, I was very confident that she was going to be like, why did I marry you when I could have married Olivier Giroud? I don't know if that's possible, but ding, I feel ding, like ding, that's... There's the name. She says no. She says no on Olivier Giroud. And I don't know really what to make of that one or what that means about my attractiveness uh, to her. I think that's a win for you, Taylor, somehow in some (laughs) some world. Ryan, I also have Olivier Giroud on the top of my list. Uh, Yes. To actually get into that analysis that Jackie's talking about, I really went all in here. Well, not all in, but you get the idea. Of course. Six foot four. Six foot four. So he's tall. He's got the jawline. Do you have naked photos of Olivier Giroud? Is that what we're hearing? (laughs) I'm just going to keep keep pressing on here. Uh, He's got that well trained beard. Joe's room, you know, it's something about, um, (laughs) sorry, always sunny in Philadelphia with Charlie with his board and he's pointing at it and he's got all these pictures of Giroud. All the red lines. Yeah. No, (laughs) that's exactly what's happening here. He's got the beard. He's got the, the jawline, the nice fade. Uh, yeah, Margaret, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. But, I don't know. Yeah, Ryan, I'm, I don't know. She's I'm also you. the most attractive Manchester United players to her are Patrice Evra, sure, and Nemanja Vidic. And I don't know what to make of that one either. So, grain of salt with my wife's uh, selections <laughs> okay. for attractive footballers. Vidic. Okay. 
No judgment. She, she, um, likes, she likes a man, Ryan. That's what I am assured by her. <laughs> that, that got Ryan good. <laughs> I like that. But I, I think Olivia Giroud was the, was, the, was the bright light for me. I was thinking about 2018 as well. And this was a few years after his famous pictures appeared, which Joe has all over his wall now, with the yeah. uh, when he was having his... Uh, a dalliance with that model and he was in his uh, very small underwear so that would have oh, yeah. coincided with this era um, I had some other thoughts if we're looking at World Cup players from that era Hammers Rodriguez stands out mm. to me as well yeah, Radamel Falcao Isco Isco surely a ringer in this conversation I would say um, and one other I would mention is this guy Lionel Messi he earned $111 million in 2018 and that is sexy and uh, <laughs> this is also I believe before he coloured in his uh, leg with a, with a tattoo that made it entirely one colour yeah uh, I mean Unless you like the entirely one color like tattoo. Sure, you might. Uh, I, I like Marcus Rojo's tattoo. I also like uh, how much of a diligent father he is. So I had him on my list, but Margaret said no on that one. I had Matt Hummels. She approved of that one. Matt Hummels is, is a handsome man, facial hair or no, long hair or short. It works either way. I'm going to say Ruben Loftus-Cheek uh, has Ooh, solid facial yeah. hair, lots of different looks, That's pretty good. fashionable. He's a handsome fellow as well. Yeah, I'll oh, add man. in two quickly here. Uh, one from our great region of CONCACAF, Carlos Vela. He's he is he's got the great hair, usually a little on the longer side, which is kind of unusual, I think, for a lot of these guys. He can hit you with that smolder if if for some reason that's <laughs> happening. I don't really know what the case would be when that happens. But Vela and then Thomas Lamar, uh, who was on that friend, France oh, team yeah. that won that tournament. Uh, great, great looking guy. Great hair. Well kept facial hair. Um, those are my submissions alongside Olivier Giroud. I really do appreciate how much thought we all put into this. That, like, when you say Thomas Lamar, I'm like, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah. that's not <laughs> what I was expecting, but I'm cool with it. Yeah. And mentioning yeah. Vela has made me think on another MLS stint. Jonathan De Santos has got to yeah. be in the conversation for me as well. Mm. <laughs> He's got to be. Think- He's got to be. Would Vela have made the team though? <sighs> or did he go? He didn't yeah, go. He right? went, no, he went. He, he went. Okay, he went. Okay, he well against okay. Germany in that tournament. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're right. Okay. All right. Then never mind then. Disregard what I said. Fernando Llorente did not go, but he was my other, like, if he were in there, he might be in the conversation as well. We could oh, go yeah, along seen... this path for like a weird amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, we could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we could. Maybe we should part this and we'll, we'll just, uh, Jackie will say, to quote Todd from Scrubs, uh, TSS appreciates hot regardless of gender. So we this are very true. comfortable having this conversation and Olivier Giroud <laughs> is the uh, winning answer. Did he say that about Colin Farrell? Because I think he did. I believe he did. I believe yes. he did. <laughs> Which is the correct take on Colin Farrell as that well. That was an excellent guest starring role that Colin Farrell had in Scrubs, <laughs> I seem to remember. I think it was the first time I ever heard him play Irish. That's That, that might be the only time he's ever done an Irish accent until uh, in Bruges. He was um, he was doing the very stereotypical Irishman. All right, lads, I got in a fight and I'm in, I'm in here with this guy because I punched him out. Oh, yeah. yeah. They good. literally made him do the Lucky Charms thing. They literally <laughs> make him say, like, pink hearts, <laughs> like marshmallows, all that. <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, very serious question has been answered, Jackie. Thank you very much for that. We'll be back after these short messages with some more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. Shreyas Romani is back again with one. Thank you very much, Shreyas, for getting involved here. He says, the Premier League just announced that Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry were its inaugural Hall of Fame inductees. His question of Premier League's of the Premier League's active players, who do you think is a surefire Hall of Fame player? And he says, besides Sergio Aguero and Harry Kane, is this to assume they would definitely be included? Taylor. Uh, I think it is. And I would say Sergio Aguero definitely is. I guess we'll have to see. I think Harry Kane needs like one, one title winning season somewhere. But I think overall, yeah, I think for being a consistently good English striker, he'll be in there. I think for that reason, I have Jamie Vardy on the verge. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, Ryan. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. The only one that I really felt supremely confident about would be N'Golo Kante. Yeah. For what he did at Leicester and then what he's done at Chelsea and everything in between, including, I know we're not supposed to consider other things, but also winning a World Cup. That's That gets just a little sprinkling, even if we're just talking about the Premier League. But mostly for what he's done in the Premier League with two different teams, uh, I think he's uh, on my, he's number one on my list. Taylor, our hive mind has come through there because he was absolutely Correct. number one on my list here. I had my, my, my notes say Leicester play Vardy and Kante, yep. but Kante underlined two titles with two teams, four times in the PFA Team of the Year, won a World Cup and the Europa League as well to boot. So he, I think he 100% makes it and he's still obviously uh, doing rather well for himself. And Jamie Vardy, I think can, I think he makes it because of the story of Leicester City Agreed. and his role in it and because... If this is a Hall of Fame, he's very famous and he's memorable and he's got a very memorable story, the way he's come up come up from non-league soccer, the way he infuses those Skittles with the vodka to help himself recover. <laughs> it's all very, you know, it's all very Hall of Fame stuff, I would say, for Vardy. And even um, the story, where did he come from? It was Stonebridge, uh, I think fl- the club was, was it? Uh, Fleetwood. No, one of those. Yeah, Fleet, it was definitely Fleetwood in there. I forget. But like, yeah, the, the kind of where he was to where he is, that rise also, I think, is a, is a narrative that they would want in the Hall of Fame. Which is also true for Kante coming second division French team as well. True. And being poached, uh, to a league winning team. So, yeah, Kante, absolutely. My other, uh, nominees I would put forward, Kevin De Bruyne, I think would Ooh. certainly be up there. Um, 
maybe Virgil van Dijk. We'll see how yeah. he how he springs back from his current um, troubles. But you know, having pretty big impact at two clubs, certainly uh, won a title for one of them. Uh, almost on his own, one could argue, or his impact at that club was very very mm-hmm. important for them getting that long awaited title. Uh, an outside ringer as well, Gareth Bale. Wow. <laughs> Uh, you might have to make a case there. I'm with you on Virgil van Dyke. I think, yeah, maybe another season of him being the best defender in the world would do it for me. Gareth Bale, I, gosh, it's a tough one. Because isn't it like, couldn't you argue that most of his success came when he wasn't playing in the Premier League? Yeah, but, it, you know, it, it depends. Uh, is the Hall of Fame solely for actions taken within the Premier League? I suppose it is, isn't it? Because in that sense, <laughs> if it's the when, Premier League when you've scored in several Champions League finals when you weren't involved in the Premier League team, maybe that does negate from my argument. But I was just thinking back to the Premier League years of around 2010, Harry Redknapp leading out his Range Rover and Gareth Bale just banging him in for fun. And because he's got a good story of coming, you know, the fullback to basically a striker, um, which... I think is a really interesting story as well. And yeah, I've talked myself out of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joe. Uh, yeah. So I had Jamie Vardy on my like possible list. Virgil van Dyke was on there as well. Uh, and then the other one, I would love to hear what you all have to say, because this might be too recent. It might be too soon and it might be too personal for me, but I would say Marcus Rashford is in that conversation. Yes. If yeah. things continue. Yeah. I, I had I had him down on my shortlist too. Sorry to jump on you there, Joe, but just because of his impact off the field as well. And I know we're talking about Premier League Hall of Fame and the only things that happen in the Premier League, but his importance in the past year has you cannot underestimate mm-hmm. what he's done for society, basically. So um I think as as he, as his path continues, he's very much a he a future shoe in, Taylor. I like that pick. And he's only what, twenty three, I think. He already has over a hundred and seventy something appearances for Manchester United. He has over fifty goals. So I think if he continues on if he doesn't end up getting played to the point where he has no spine, which like I think he's broken his back or injured his back multiple times in the last like 16 months. Uh, but if he can continue, I think there's a chance that he also moves up the like all time appearances record, maybe the all time goal scoring record as well for Manchester United, which I think furthers him in that conversation. And uh, Joe, this is the point where you jump in and say the name of the player we've been missing and go, oh. Uh, pretend that I've done that because I, I haven't. <laughs> you all have taken the ones that I was thinking. I do oh, just no. want to. Actually, no, that's that's a lie. I do have one. But before I get to that one that hasn't been said yet, I want to go back to Kevin De Bruyne real quick. I think Sergio Aguero is a shoe in. He's a surefire Premier League Hall of Famer. De Bruyne, I think, is as well, just because he is the player more so than Aguero for me that embodies Manchester City's on field approach and on field excellence the best. I don't think there's any other City player that really is as Guardiola as Kevin De Bruyne is, and, and he's just been downright filthy good for the last several years. So I, I have De Bruyne, I had Conte. And then the third guy, Taylor, I want to get your read on this, is a Manchester United goalkeeper, David De Gea. I, I know he hasn't been himself, Oof. but I mean, he's been with Manchester United since 2011, and he was the guy for a long time. I, I don't, it might be a little bit less than surefire that Treyas is looking for, but I think there's at least an argument to be made for him to be in that Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the problem for him is that he was so good at a time when Manchester United were not that if he were playing, if he had gotten more opportunities in the Ferguson era where he had won some more silverware, I think that probably boosts him a little bit. But just the way he maybe ends up fading away, we'll yeah. see how things go. But yeah, like aside from that, I think that's a really good shout because there were multiple years in which he was the best goalkeeper on the planet. I don't think that's just my opinion, but it might be. But either way, I think that's enough to get you in that conversation for sure. 
And that kind of leads me to, I got stuck in a rabbit hole on this question, and I looked at World Cup winners who are currently active. Um, Hugo Lloris, Paul Pogba, Kante, and Giroud. Uh, and if you look at World Cup winners who are no longer in the Premier League but still active, you've got PK, Steven and Zonzi, Jerome Boateng, and Meza Ozil as well. So I don't know if I've added anything there, but that is to say maybe Hugo Lloris was my tenuous tie to that conversation. Does he <laughs> does he get in there maybe as a goalkeeper? Because if you think about De Gea when he first joined as well, Taylor, do you remember how he was very much vilified mm-hmm. and he was the flop? Oh, yeah. To start off with. Whereas did Lloris have that journey? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think he had a, a period of time when it was like, can he be trusted with, Clearance like crosses? I can't remember. Also definitely driving. Uh yikes. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know about about Hugo Lloris. Because the one that I'm sort of on, I would be okay with him being in there. Right Ryan, I don't know where you are, but Raheem Sterling is another one that's probably worth mentioning for I think if he won the title with Liverpool way back when in that season when it seemed like that was a thing they were gonna do, and then he went to Man City and won mm-hmm. all the silverware he's won, he's he's a shoe in. Uh spelled S H O O, I've now learned, not S H O E. I tweeted that yesterday, but it's worth reminding. Uh yeah, I, I would say Raheem Sterling is also in that conversation for me. Uh, I also just kinda like him as a player. I think that's fair. We're getting okay. a lot of City players. And if David Silva hadn't it feels um, right. retired, then we definitely have him in as well, I would presume. Yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, David Silva. He also might have been in my most attractive players list as well. Uh, Thought about that. Crossover with your wife? Her list? <laughs> I'll have to ask. I'll have to ask. <laughs> Let us know after. Shoot us a text. Please do. I have yeah. a feeling if I sent her a photo of Daniela De Rossi, she'd be like, yep, that's the guy for me. And that tells you maybe what you need to know. <laughs> Hence why I've shaved my head and fully grown my beard out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Shrez, I hope that answered your question. We did did revert back to hunkiness there for a moment, but uh, hey, hey, it's our show. We can do what we want here. Next question, Trevor Lintner asks or says, Red Bull seems to have a super solid pipeline to bring players and managers up through the teams. Does City Football, Football Group have something similar that is under the radar or is it overshadowed by the drastic difference in quality between Man City and the rest? Or is that not their real goal like it is for Red Bull? I've got some thoughts here. Taylor, would you like to kick us off? Uh, yeah, sure. I think there's two things for me. I think the first is that they don't really need to have that model, essentially, because they have so much money. I think yeah. Leipzig do that, uh, like, approach the way they do in Red Bull as a whole, approach it the way they do because they're not trying to spend the same money as an oil-rich state. I think they're trying to find ways to find value, develop that talent, and if they do end up selling it on to make money off of that, to then further reinvest into the various teams. And I think it's a sort of natural system that's a necessary system for them. For City Football Group, I don't think they have to worry about some of those things nearly as much. So I do think where their approach differs, uh, this comes from an article called Inside City Football Group, which maybe everybody read. We'll find out. Uh, but in there, Don Dransfield, who's the director of operations and development at Man- at City Football Group, excuse me, said this, and I thought it was pretty telling. In very practical terms, what that means from a footballing perspective is it means we're able to have more scouts in more places who are watching more games of more players and collecting better data and information to allow us to better a- uh, be able to make better investment decisions on those players, end quote. And I think what that means is that essentially they have scouting networks 
looks that one scout is looking at players for every city team or like maybe multiple city teams. And it's, is that an NYCFC player or is that a Manchester City player? Or maybe it's the starting somewhere and then going to another. I think that is how they approach scouting. And I think it is different than the sort of linear progression, the start here, move here, move here, eventually go to Leipzig or eventually be bought by Bayern Munich. Uh, I think this one allows them to have more of a footprint. And if they end up selling on smaller players, they do sort of turn a profit in that way. But I think overall, they're not trying to develop them because they have the money to just go out and buy, you know, 60 million pound fullbacks a couple different times. It is interesting, Taylor, because when the City Football Group, um, you know, the pattern emerged of what they were doing. They've got Man City, they've got NYCFC in the US, they've got Melbourne City in Australia, Club Atletico Torque in Uruguay, and they've got Girona and uh, Yokohama in uh, in Japan in minority stakes there. And it, it did seem like they were going to try and do that Red Bull thing, moving players between clubs, but there hasn't been a lot of crossover. Like Jack Harrison, probably an example of mm-hmm. a player who crossed over. There was a Brazilian defensive midfielder who went to uh, Girona uh, because he couldn't get a work permit. There's been like work permit reasons why that has happened for certain players as well. So it's not quite the the pipeline. But they have also created their own pipeline within Man City with their own youth system as well. You know, Foden coming being a very famous one to come. And maybe the only player who's come through properly locally, he's from Stockport, which is near Manchester. But you've got players like uh, Sancho, Eric Garcia, Brahim Diaz, uh, Iniacho, Taylor Harwood Bellis, uh, Tommy Doyle. There's there's lots of... Um, some Someone used to write about uh, City's uh, youth soccer for, for the Athletic. Uh, as I can reel off those names but um, (laughs) it's uh, it's, yeah the the model isn't quite the same and I think you nailed it in your first sentence Taylor when you said it doesn't have to be basically Mm -hmm. they don't need it they don't need it as much and there is uh, there is as uh, as Trevor says a drastic quality difference between the sides which makes it less important it makes their model less reliant on such a thing yeah I I thought about this uh, using a giraffe so buckle up everybody if if we if you think about a giraffe and just a regular human You've got the giraffe head and then the really, really long neck and then the shoulders. And then on the human, you've just got the head and the neck and the shoulders. I think we can picture that pretty clearly. City Football Group is the giraffe and Red Bull is the human. And City Football Group, Manchester City is the head of the giraffe. And then there's this really, really big gap mm-hmm. between the head and the rest of the giraffe's body. And the rest of the giraffe's body is NYCFC, Melbourne, and all the other umpteen clubs they have. For for Red Bull, it's just the head, which is Leipzig. And then the shoulders is probably Salzburg. And then maybe the stomach is Red Bull, New York. And they have a few other ones, right? But it's it's just that idea that you're getting at, Taylor. There is just this massive gulf in class that has been created mm-hmm. by money from the head of the giraffe to the rest of the giraffe. So I think Trevor honestly gave us the answer in his question. And I think between the three of us, we've fleshed that out rather well. I, I, I've got to call it up there. I'm, I'm not sure giraffes have shoulders. Yeah, okay. Fair, fair. I don't, I, I don't know what giraffes have. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> but you know that you should be a biologist to know that. So I think that's a credit to you, Joe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that that analogy does make sense because even a player, like one of the players they tout as being a success would be Aaron Moy, who Melbourne City FC purchased. Then he gets brought to England, loaned to Huddersfield, eventually sold. Mm. And I think that is a good idea of maybe where their model is, is maybe you'll get that rare occasion when a player comes through. But yeah, is Young Herrera, is Jack Harrison, are they going to play 
for Manchester City outside of maybe preseason friendlies. I doubt it. So I think you have more of a we'll develop some players to sell on or to move within those other clubs. But for Man City, that's not really what we're trying to do. I think fundamentally they just want a lot of different clubs that are all city connected. They talked a lot about how they want sort of seamless connectivity around the world, which seems like an optimistic or uh, uh, a very sort of grandiose plan, but also seems to be one that they're actually executing at the same time. Yeah. And I'll add just uh, just for a bit of flavor that City Football Group also do um, share executives throughout the all the different um, yeah. com- uh, clubs as well. They do move around a reasonable amount and uh, they sometimes end up at the, the giraffe's head of Manchester City, <laughs> if they're lucky enough. <laughs> Shall we move on to our final question, gents? How about we do that? Sure. Uh, Dallin Christensen asks, for teams looking at young US players, is it better for those players to be more positionally flexible, i.e. Weston McKennie at Schalke, or to be excellent at a single position, i.e. Weston McKennie at Juventus? Uh, I feel, says uh, Dallin, like a player like Gianluca Busio is not as viable of a prospect because he plays so many positions. He loves the show, he'd like to add, but I don't like reading out compliments, but I did it anyway. There we go. Taylor. <laughs> uh, can I can we let Joe go for this one? Please do. And then I will and then I will piggyback on what Joe says. So I, I kind of I, I guess I kind of disagree with the premise of this question down a little bit. Oh boy. I, I think my <laughs> response is not really an answer to the question, but my response to the question is I'm not totally sure it's possible to have a non- positionally flexible player at this point, maybe outside of a center back or a six or a striker, right? Looking at Weston McKinney as an example, yeah, he played everywhere at Schalke and that was a little bit crazy, right? Maybe too far to the end of of that extreme. But at Juve, he's still doing a whole bunch of different things. He's still starting wide, tucking inside, defending wide, you know, moving back and rotating in possession. He might not technically be playing eight different spots over the course of one season, but he's probably playing three different spots over the course of 90 minutes, right? So that that still is positional flexibility. So I think even looking at young U.S. players, and you can apply this to any any sort of scouting or any sort of player you know, prospect searching or whatever you want to do, I, I don't think there are a lot of non-positionally flexible players outside of those spots I mentioned. Caden Clark, Cade Cow, we've talked about both of those guys on the show already briefly. They play all sorts of different spots over the course of 90 minutes, and they are even more flexible than than a lot of other players their age. And then Busio, I don't think Busio's not a shoe-in prospect because that was a really confusing way to phrase that. Let me try that again. Busio isn't a shoe-in prospect in my view, but that's not because he spent time at four or five different spots for Sporting Kansas City. It's because he sometimes makes poor decisions with the ball, sometimes shoots when he probably should pass, sometimes doesn't pass when he should right i mean it's these it's these technical issues these decision making issues that i think are are busio's flaw specifically so i don't think i answer that question but that's kind of how i look (laughs) at looking at younger players as they're going to develop into more established pros yeah i would i would echo that i would say that i think it's tough to find a young player who's locked into one specific position. And I do think to some extent that if you do have that, it makes them less attractive to a coach in the same way that you often hear in a job interview. Like I'd rather have somebody who I can train myself versus a person who's coming in and and thinking they know exactly how everything works. And I think that extends here. It's why there wasn't as much interest in Jordan Morris or Paul Areola, Jordan Morris, especially when he was looking to go abroad, why he ended up in the championship is because German clubs want younger players who are still pretty raw, have lots of ability, but they can be molded into what those clubs need. And I think that's what a lot of scouts and a lot of a lot of um, European managers are looking for. And that's where American players, I think, continue to be 
desirable, especially young American players, because the things you tend to hear about them are that they're very coachable because they're taught to listen to instruction and listen to what their coach says. They don't always have the best coaching, certainly, but there's still this idea that you're listening to your coach, you're playing in a system. And I think that is a very common thing across American soccer players. And it tends to be a thing that makes them attractive. So too does the work ethic and the willingness to, to do whatever's asked of them. And then there is a little bit of the chip on the shoulder that everybody knows an American coming in is like, oh, you do you play soccer? Oh, you call it soccer. Of course you do. Like there's those three things I think are big factors when scouts are looking at American players and then the raw assets as well. But I think all of that ends up being once you're in training, where do you fit in and what can you do? And like Weston McKinney is an example. We saw him with Schalke playing as a right wing back, a right back, uh, like a number six, a number eight, a number 10. I don't know if we ever saw him as a right midfielder, which is where Juve keep using him. And so or a wide midfielder. And so even there, there's a lot of similarity, but I think there's flexibility that allows coaches to utilize different players in different ways. And I think that probably helps them when it comes to getting scouted and getting signed. I think you both have nailed it there, but I think in general, it's a nuanced question and it depends mm-hmm. on the player. It depends on the position of the player and it depends on the coach as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if one of these players went to play for Pep Guardiola, you're going to be a fullback at some point. So, you know, that's, <laughs> you, you can't, you've got to be flexible there. And then you look at players who are very good in a single position. And it strikes me from the last weekend, Vinicius Jr., uh, very good as a forward and, uh, and being made mm. to play as a wingback. Not so, not so hot, not so hot in that position. So it, it, it does depend. Cause if you, do you guys ever buy the body wash and shampoo when it's combined? Um, because sometimes it. in the gym you'll see like body wash and shampoo mm-hmm. and it's in the same bottle. No, you you, you want the specialty. You want either yep. the body wash or the shampoo. So it depends. Yeah, I don't so- trust two in one conditioner shampoo either for that reason. Exactly. And Vinicius is very much the spe- he's he's the body wash or the shampoo. He's not the combined. Whereas some players <laughs> might be. And I think it depends positionally as well because you know a lot of time wingers tend to be wingers. They don't move around a lot. Strikers tend to be strikers. But you know there is there's some mid- midfield nuances that can change. And uh, as I say, if you're coached by Pep, you will end up changing position whether you like it or not so it is it very is a, it's an interesting thought but it's it's also a very a nuanced question which depends on a lot of different factors and and i know that every player like literally every player even if they're known for one thing have has at some point done different things like they've played as a center back and then they became a forward or they played as a goalkeeper and then became a midfielder uh the only one i have a hard time ever believing did anything other than what he does right now is robert Lewandowski. and i'm sure he was a midfielder or a center back at some point but i just like to think that he he was born and immediately like scored a goal from inside the six yard box and that was how it began <laughs> Wasn't Manuel Neuer a striker at some point as well? Yeah. I think that's a common thing, right, with goalkeepers and strikers, that there's a little bit of interchange because there's the height thing. You want a tall one, but also, like, the idea, at least when I was playing, was if you're a goalkeeper who used to be a striker, you sort of know what they're going to do. That never really made sense to me because what they're going to do is shoot the ball at the goal. Like, that that seems pretty common. Uh, But, yes, I think there is an overlap there as well. I recall when David James was at Portsmouth, he was brought on as a sub as a striker. Ooh. For, uh, for late Ooh. in the game. I don't think it paid off, but hey, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, I will say that Manchester United's greatest ever goalkeeper is John O'Shea. Saved a penalty. That's all it takes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be in the Hall of Fame. Let's put him in the Hall of Fame. Peter Smichael raising an eyebrow as he listens to the Total Soccer Show listener questions there. Grinning while uh, grinning while debating. That seems to be his MO yeah, on, on CBS's coverage. Praising the Glazers. <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> 
Yikes. That's Yikes a whole that. other conversation, but I think, James, yeah. that just about wraps up our listener questions. I will say, I think you've both done an outstanding job of answering this list of questions. You both deserve a pat on the back. If I had a trophy in front of me right now, I'd melt it down. I'd give you both a huge chunk. Aww. Thanks, I mean, Ryan. That's, I appreciate that. I mean, that said, I think a real friend would actually melt something down and send it to us, but please don't do that. Please don't do that. Never mind. I changed my mind. I think, practically speaking, I'd just maybe keep the trophy and let you share it, maybe, so it was still <laughs> a trophy and not a melted-down piece of metal. But hey. I see. I, I just got nervous because when I think melted-down metal, I think either, like, mercury, like, as liquid metal, which will then make me go crazy, or I think the T-1000, yeah. the liquid Terminator, and that scares me, too. This I don't need Robert Patrick. It. Robert Patrick in my life I don't need. So, yeah. Well, we've reached the end of the show when when the randomness ensues. So, yeah, maybe that's a good point to end on. Taylor, I hate to break it to you. I I hate to break it to you. Yeah, yeah, we've we've been doing this the whole time, man. The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you both were scrambling to get that joke in first. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's the, the, the giraffe talk and the and the mm-hmm. metal talk ends now. Taylor, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you all. Sorry. <laughs> Joe Lowry, a wonderful time has been had by us listening to your dulcet tones. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Bye! Bye!